0: When I first began this practice a number of years ago, I was somewhat taken aback by the honesty and bluntness of the language. I had come out of a yoga tradition, and you know we talked about love and light and you know none of this greed, hatred, and delusion stuff, so I was. When I began this practice, I was also engaged in trying to let go of a close friendship, just a matter of us kind of moving apart from one another. Um, But in quite a passionate way, we were moving apart and very upset with each other, very angry with each other. And I remember spending time with my friend Larry, who had been on this path for a bit longer than me at that point. And I was... You know, as a friend, I was just talking about my difficulties with this other friend and expressing quite a bit of anguish and anger. And um, he looked at me and he said, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. And I thought, what? You know, (laughs) suffering? Such a strong word to use. (laughs) I said, you know, I I really just hate her. That's the problem. (laughs) with no, no recognition that, of course, it was suffering. But this is what I'd like to speak about tonight. I'd like to speak about um, what is called dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering. Sometimes we do take suffering to um, as a personal insult. You know, oftentimes when we feel uh, pain, when we feel sorrow, when we feel that we are suffering, We sometimes do take it very personally, as if it's our problem, our personal problem, as if it's our fault. When in actuality, um, it's a universal experience, and it's actually what the Buddha spoke about as being the first noble truth. It has its own place. It's actually quite something that all beings experience, obviously, in some form or another. Usually, or Oftentimes this word is translated as suffering and as we kind of practice more and are involved with community more, it's very easy to throw this word out, you know, suffering this, suffering that, it's a little cool right now I'm suffering, um, you know, it's really easy. But in actuality the word is very subtle and it does mean suffering. It does mean very clear, um, very obvious forms of suffering. But it also means um, a sense of unfulfillment, yeah. a sense of not feeling full, not feeling satisfied. Even when things are going well, You know, just, just knowing that there's a little bit of a gap there, a little bit of a space there. Things are not quite right. Um, it can be seen as, as um, discontent, which I like this word very much, just not, not feeling contentment. Having a sense of discontent. A feeling that uh, whatever one is relying upon is actually unreliable. So there being an unreliable sense in life pertaining to the body, pertaining to the mind, pertaining to others. And a a fragility. You know, when we look at this body, we can just see how fragile the body is, how uncertain it is Um, in terms of being healthy, in terms of being sick whether we take really good care of ourselves or not, the body at some point is going to get sick, is going to break down, is unreliable, is fragile, is uncertain. So it also means, means incapable of satis- sat- satisfaction or satisfying, um, incapable of offering lasting fulfillment. And one of my teachers in Thailand, Aja Mahabua calls dukkha a constant squeeze, a constant squeeze. So this squeeze, of course, can be felt in the body, or the mind can be squeezed. Whatever it is that's happening, one can feel it as pressure, that there's pressure occurring, pressure happening. It, I think, is really important to recognize the universal nature of dukkha, because when we do, it allows us to let go a little bit. It allows for a certain space. In a sense, when we hear this, and maybe the first time we hear it, and maybe you know the, the millionth time we hear it, we still feel a little bit of relief in the recognition that it's not just happening to me, that it really is a common bond. You know, it's really something that connects us to one another. It's really something that, um, really, really is, um, holds us to one another, that is common to the human experience. In this culture, it's a little hard because there can be somewhat of a moralistic feeling about it, that if you're not always happy and cheerful, that, um, you know, there's a big problem with you. And oftentimes because happiness is translated as being successful in a worldly way, it kind of makes it worse that when one is not conventionally quote, successful or um, inwardly is experiencing um, states of mind that all beings experience, it's quite easy to see it as one's personal fault. So just to recognize this as first noble truth, as that which is common to all human beings, helps so much with putting it in its proper place, coming to terms with suffering. The Buddha spoke about the different kinds of suffering there can be, and they range from the coarse, the crude, the very, very obvious, to the subtle, to the most subtle, this sense of discontent or things not being quite right. So it doesn't, this word doesn't mean only times of real tragedy or even times of, of um, unhappiness. It includes this, but it's really much more refined, much more far-reaching, and much more subtle. Someone once said how vexed are even the most fortunate of human beings. And this is what this word applies to, this word dukkha applies to. You know, sometimes what we call a tragedy is really, really sad. I I read in the paper a little while ago about a gourmet uh, food store burning down and several people reporting it as a tragedy. No one died, you know, just the food died. (laughs) No no real problem there, and yet a a tragedy. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, there are three different aspects to to Dukkha that the Buddha spoke about. The first one is um, what we always think of as suffering, ordinary Dukkha, ordinary suffering. The pain of birth, the pain of being born, you know babies usually come out crying or they need to start crying fairly soon. Um, The the pain of of having a baby, Um, the pain of death, the pain of sickness. In other words, all the kinds of things that can happen to this fragile body, whatever we do to try to prevent it, these things will happen to everybody's body at some point. So this this realm of the physical, simply having a body meaning there will be dukkha because of the fragility and the uncertainty of what can happen in this body. And whatever specifically happens, of course, everyone experiences sickness. Everyone experiences ill health. Everyone experiences Um, bodily difficulties at one point or another, and of course, everyone dies. It's also meant to mean um, really obvious forms of suffering such as poverty in the world and injustice in the world, um, famine, um, parts of the world that seem to be absolutely pervaded by a really strong degree of suffering that seems almost constant. This also means the mental, emotional suffering that we experience as human beings. You know, the, the, um, the experiences of despair, the experiences of depression, the experiences of grief, the experiences of anger, the experiences of loss. The Buddha said that in every place on this earth, there has been tears that have been shed. There's not one, one area on this earth in which tears have not been shed, not one little space on this earth in which tears that have have not been shed. So it also means being separated from those whom we love, being separated from those whom we want to be with, whom we want to spend time with, who may not want to spend time with us, or who may not be able to spend time with us. It also means having to be with people that we don't want to spend time with, just look at one's work life, Many times that's a good situation to see that in, that we have to, to make a living, we have to spend time with those whom we don't want to be with, whom we find unpleasant or difficult people to be with. So we're connected with those whom we don't want to be connected with. We're separated from those whom we want to be connected with. Not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. So these very basic forms of suffering, and usually, of course, this is what we mean by this word suffering, are these kinds of suffering that we know so well in this world. We either know it in ourselves in a very clear way, or we're very aware in this world of the depth of suffering that can be. The second kind of suffering is what is called the dukkha of impermanence, or the... Um, Dukkha that happens because of change, that is produced by change. The momentariness of experiences when things change that we don't want to change. So, you know, everything kind of being perfect, let's say there is very little of this first kind of suffering and you have the exact right relationship in your life and that person is always saying what you want them to say <laughs> for one moment anyway. Let's just take a moment here. <laughs> and you have the perfect place to live and you have just uh, the right amount of money and you know everything you have the perfect livelihood everything is is perfect in your life you know the thing about somebody saying what you want them to say probably will uh, only last a moment or two but anyway let's pretend that it's perfect the dukkha of impermanence the dukkha of change you know things changing things moving things falling out of our hands out of our grasp And so this is the dukkha that we all know very well, this dukkha of impermanence, this dukkha of change, which again, just to remind you, doesn't pertain to any one person, but is a common and shared experience. Whatever which way things are right now, they will change. Of course, it's good news in the other direction, too. Now, if things are really bad, change is really a wonderful thing. The third is the dukkha of conditioned states or conditioning and what this means is what are called the five aggregates which means what we take to be ourselves so this includes the body the conditioned body it includes feeling it includes perceptions and mental formations and consciousness and what this means is that. Everything is out of our control. The body is out of our control. Feelings are out of our control. Perceptions, consciousness, m- mental formations, it's all out of our control. Because we grasp after the aggregates as being who we are, because when, they, when we're not looking clearly, they appear to be who we are. You know, We appear to be a certain way. There appears to be a certain sense of being solid and substantial when we grasp after this seeming solidity, after this seeming substantial, permanent, solid sense of self, there is dukkha. There is dukkha. So this is the third kind of dukkha. The third kind of dukkha is called samkara dukkha. The second kind of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha. And the first kind of dukkha is called dukkha dukkha. Or, as I like it, double dukkha. <laughs> so, this doesn't... Um, this teaching of dukkha, this teaching of the first noble truth, doesn't at all negate the fact that there is great happiness in this world. No. When we are with someone, when we, when we have found Um, If we want to be in relationship, if we don't want to be, if we find happiness in that, if we do want to be in relationship and we found the right person to be in relationship with, this is really a wonderful happiness in life. Of course, those of us who have found the most wonderful relationship to be in also know that, in a sense, our work begins then uh, because that kind of um, myth that the perfect relationship is going to make us happy in a lasting way, we see through quite quickly, or within a year, maybe. (laughs) Sometimes that can last for a while. (laughs) But then, you know, it hits. Then we, we understand that our work has begun the happiness of finding right livelihood, finding work that one really wants to do and loves to do and you know feels, feels that one is serving in some way, serving the world in some way. It's such a grace, it's such a huge thing when we find this out. And it's worthwhile, of course, to try to find out what one's uh, wonderful work could be. But when we find out a way to spend our life in terms of our work, this is a great happiness as well. The Buddha spoke about the happiness of family life, the happiness of um, non-family life, the happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness that is possible to feel in this physical body. You know? There's a lot of happiness to be felt in this physical body. The happiness to be felt in this mind, mental happiness. The Buddha spoke about all these kinds of happiness that are possible to feel. And yet, he termed them all as dukkha. That's why this word is so subtle, and you don't want to only use the word suffering. Because he talked about them all as being dukkha because everything changes. Because there is impermanence. And noticing our attachment and our grasping is the only thing that releases us from dukkha what we need to understand are three things really. One is enjoyment, the second is change and the consequences of change, and the third is non-attachment, meaning connection and liberation. And the first one, he said, enjoyment is really important to understand because If we don't open to the enjoyment of sense pleasure or the enjoyment of being with a good friend or the enjoyment of of good work or whatever it may be, the the heart is closed. The heart is kind of cool and, and indifferent, you know, because it is possible to experience enjoyment. And if we don't open to it, we also won't know what people are experiencing, what others are experiencing and when we notice somebody really craving after food or really you know kind of obsessing about a particular relationship and we if we don't know it ourselves we think that they're kind of crazy when in actuality they're not it's really just that they've gotten attached to that enjoyment just as is possible for each one of us so it really helps us with our understanding our ability to understand the human condition and then, as well, to stay with enjoyment long enough or to stay with pleasure long enough to be able to notice that it changes, you know, to be aware of its changing nature. Just maybe an example could be about a relationship because that's what we may know this in best, those of us here, perhaps, um, as lay people and, and not renunciants. I, well, actually, I should not say that because renunciants experience experienced this quite a bit, too, from all the rumors. But anyway... <laughs> anyway, um, uh, some noticing a person that you're really drawn to, seeing a person that you're really drawn to, and being aware that there's a lot of pleasure in it, and you really like the way they look, and they're speaking in a very charming way to you, and um, you've kind of, you know, forgotten at that moment to kind of check out their paramis and see whether there's honesty there, and, you know, and kindness there and compassion there you just you just kind of feel kind of fascinated or entranced by their body or their their uh their looks or the way they're complimenting you or something like that so that's that's you know that's the enjoyment part and then if we stay with it long enough if we hang around that person long enough or if we're aware of the pleasure element long enough um if it's not grounded in something that's you know more true than pleasure, or more lasting than pleasure, then what we will begin to see is change. The charming turning charmless. The uh, seeming flattery, you know, getting tired of it. Um, You know, noticing little things about them that we don't like, that we hadn't seen before, about their haircut or, you know, something that originally looked really, really good. So staying with it long enough to see this. And then the third being non-attachment and connection and liberation, which means that with the, when the enjoyment is happening, if we can remember non-attachment and connection, which means connection to this person not as an object, you know, but as a as a human being, when we can be connected, when there is love there and connection and non-attachment, so that there is discernment and we can see things clearly, there is liberation, there is. A letting go there is a scene clearly there is a spaciousness. So why is recognizing and understanding Dukkha essential and important? It's essential and important because it is the starting point of the entire path. That's why. The Buddha said that there is one thing, oh practitioners, There is one thing, O bhikkhunis, the not seeing of which keeps us unfree, keeps us bound on this cyclic wheel of becoming. That one thing is the truth of dukkha. The not seeing, not dukkha itself, because this is how things are. There is dukkha, but the not seeing of dukkha is what keeps us bound and caught. Without this understanding, we're always hoping, we're always being disappointed, because things aren't turning out the way we hoped they might be. Without this understanding, we try to find peace and relief in pleasure. We try to find peace and relief in comfort or in habit or in that which is familiar. We try to find lasting refuge in places where it really can't be found, over and over again. and. We've tried many different ways to do this, all of us. And perhaps that's why we're here together in this environment with one another, without the usual sources of pleasure or comfort possible in this environment, recognizing that we need to find a new way. You know, having exhausted all of the old, which is not a bad point to come to practice from, having exhausted all of the old, uh, knowing that world well, and Really knowing that we want something different now and that something different really is possible for us. In seeing Dukkha, there is more energy to practice. It summons up the energy to practice. We see that our effort is always going somewhere. There's always effort happening in life. It's always going in one direction or the other. It's always going in the direction of more peace, more freedom, or in the direction of more misery, more contraction. It's usually going in the direction of becoming, of trying to become more or better. Or it's going in the direction of trying to accumulate more. So in the understanding of Dukkha, in the recognition of Dukkha, we begin to turn in the right direction. We can use a lot of our efforts to resist our experiences. We can use a lot of our efforts to distract ourselves and avoid. We can use an enormous amount of effort to judge ourselves. We can use an enormous amount of effort to blame others. It's so tiring, it's so exhausting, and it actually perpetuates dukkha to do this. So where does true safety and real lasting happiness reside? Always we notice, always we notice that it resides in the very same place as dukkha. Huh? In other words, if we can recognize and know dukkha as dukkha and not as anything other than dukkha, then we can find a lasting refuge, a lasting happiness, a lasting freedom in the very same place as there is dukkha. In other words, if we can recognize it, if we can be aware of it without doing our usual things to try to move away from it, to deny, to pretend, if we can be aware in the present moment, in the present moment freedom is possible. A very difficult feeling occurring, if we can be mindful and aware of that feeling instead of doing everything we can to move away from it, we see it in a totally different way than we had. We see it as changing, we see it as fluid, we see it as empty, we see it as insubstantial, we see it as an impersonal energy arising and passing away. And we find that it's possible to touch space, we find it's possible to touch um, the heart, the real heart, the true heart. We find it's possible to touch um, the coolness, you know, the, the, the cool breeze, the, uh, the cool water, uh, that which is, is soothing, that which is totally soothing. So we begin to use our efforts. We try to turn our efforts in the right direction, which is always towards Dukkha towards what it is that is happening in the present moment, is another way to put it, in the right way. The recognition of dukkha is the pathway to its end. The Buddha said, one who sees dukkha sees also the arising of dukkha, sees also the cessation of dukkha, sees also the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. One who sees dukkha sees also the arising of dukkha, sees also the cessation of dukkha, sees also the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. So if one sees the first noble truth, actually one also sees the other three, which, of course, are the arising or the reason why the cessation and the path leading to the end of dukkha. But the shortcut, you know, there's a great path and it's a good path and there's a lot to be said about it, but the shortcut, is really just to recognize dukkha when it's happening in the present moment to give our entire attention our whole heart to our life whatever it um, is involved in remembering that when we talk about dukkha when the buddha talked about dukkha even though it's called a truth it's not said as an absolute statement you know that life is dukkha you know or or anything like that The the statement is that Mm -hmm. there is Dukkha, not life is Dukkha. Life is anything but Dukkha. The contents of life are Dukkha. Life is not Dukkha. There can't be absolute suffering and also a way out. It doesn't make sense. Dukkha can't be an absolute fact and there also be a way out of it. So it's much different than that. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and its end. In our practice, we experience tons of dukkha. You know, just, just because of sitting and not moving and walking and wanting to, you know, instead of walking back and forth and back and forth <laughs> and back and forth. You know, one really wants to break into a trot and, you know, walk, walk, you know, run out the door, run around. Someone actually at Barry did do that once. And um, he was picked up many, many miles away from here. (laughs) It was during a three-month course a long time ago. (laughs) He he, um, called up on the telephone and asked somebody to come get him. Rajin Chah said that there are two kinds of dukkha, and it's really important to recognize these two kinds. These two kinds of dukkha are these, the dukkha that leads to more dukkha, and the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. And what he also said is that if we aren't willing to face the second kind of dukkha, we will surely continue to experience the first. Yeah. And the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha, is the dukkha we experience when we're sitting and we don't want to sit one moment more. You know, um, The dukkha that we experience when we're walking and we feel just so impatient with it and we wonder why we're doing it. That kind of dukkha. You know? And the practice really, really asking us, inviting us to stay with it anyway. You know? and, and our own commitment inviting us to stay with it anyway. But that kind of dukkha is the second kind of dukkha. Uh, the, the pains and the, the physical um, disturbances and um, you know, the, the kind of the mind wanting to jump out of the skin when we're practicing at times, that's the second kind of dukkha that we experience. And this kind of dukkha leads to the end of dukkha. It's very, very different than uh, the denying or the avoiding or the pretense. If we meditate only to experience pleasant states, the outcome will indeed be more dukkha. And it's really easy to do this. It's really easy to do this. You know, For years, for many years, 20 years, to meditate only wanting the pleasant states, to hear the Dharma talks, to in the moment of hearing the Dharma talks, say, oh, that makes sense. But then to fall back into that habit of only wanting the pleasant in life, of only wanting uh, the body to feel good, of only wanting, Um, the, the mind to feel the way we think it should feel. And it really just perpetuates suffering. It really just perpetuates dukkha. To understand and allow for the dissolving of dukkha, we do need to encounter it. We do need to meet it fully on its own terms, not on our terms. It won't change, it won't dissolve without understanding. And yet understanding will change it. Because the understanding has to do with the attachment and the grasping and the letting go. The power, the beauty, the incredible beauty of letting it be, of letting it go. Our practice is all about contact, contact with things as they are from moment to moment. Not veering away from how things are, but contact with how things are. Now mindfulness is contact. Heartfulness is contact. Throwing ourselves into our life moment after moment is contact. You know, not thinking about our life, not describing our life, not commenting about our life, not judging our life, but actually being in raw, bare contact with our life from moment to moment. This is mindfulness. And out of this contact, out of mindfulness, comes wisdom and compassion and a deep understanding. But if we don't get close enough, if we're lost in the world upon world upon world within our mind, we won't ever have a chance for there to be understanding. You know, it won't be possible for there to be understanding because we aren't close enough to our experience. So this is the invitation, this is the encouragement in practice is to get closer to our experience in a very relaxed way You know, with utter, actually with utter relaxation. Not with any degree of force or any degree of harshness, but to relax from moment to moment into our life. The way out is in. The way out of dukkha is into it. Not dwelling, not holding, not clinging, but in the present moment to fully experience, 100% experiencing our life. In facing dukkha, we come to seeing it in a different way. We come to a sense of spaciousness. We come to freedom. We learn how to accept dukkha. We learn how to stay still in the midst of it without adding reactivity, without adding identification, without taking it personally. Whatever form it's in, whether it's really extreme or whether it's really subtle, our practice is the same. Our practice is to see if we can experience it without thinking about it, without describing it, without coming to conclusions, but to fully experience it and to watch it change, to see its insubstantial nature. Responding instead of reacting. Responding to dukkha with compassion instead of with our usual habitual reactions. Instead of when we say, face it, or go in, or look at it. This can be heard in a very kind of forced way. I have to stay still, you know, and automatically with that, there's a certain degree of rigidity. I have to tense up. I have to be with it. But in actuality, what? being with or bearing with is, is allowing for the natural response of compassion to be there. Because that is the natural response of the heart in response to pain and sorrow. Now, it's become not natural. It's become quite unnatural to offer compassion to ourselves when there is pain and sorrow. But in actuality, when we let go of the unnatural, which is the harshness and the judgment and the aversion, then the natural response can be we free up compassion. We actually free up compassion. May we care for our pain. May we care for our sorrow. May all beings be free of their pain. May all beings be free of their sorrow. Sometimes when we use these phrases, we're maybe a little bit concerned about the my part. You know, may I care for my pain and we avoid it a little bit. But the reality of it is that it does feel like mine you know, when we're suffering a lot it does feel like mine whose body is it anyway you know or whose 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 depression is this it does feel like mine so it's it's really simply recognizing that relative fact that it feels like it is one's own that fact being embedded in one and so it's just wise and skillful and graceful and compassionate to work with compassion practice in this way. May I care for my pain, may I care for my sorrow. Allowing the heart to move, to open, to tremble in response to pain. Something we've not been taught. We've been taught to brace ourselves against pain. We've been taught to be afraid of our own pain as well as the pain of others. So relearning, reorienting the heart to allow it to soften, to allow the willingness to be with pain as it is, sorrow as it is. Allowing for a tenderness, a care. When there is compassion, there is a sense of non-separation. Empathy, empathy with our own pain, empathy with the pain of others, which is really different than the reactivity of aversion and judgment. So we might notice the times when we fall into Dukkha, when we actually fall headlong into it, and we find ourselves swimming around in self-pity, in blaming the world and being angry with the world for the fact that whatever it is is happening is happening. Very easy states to fall in when there's a lot of suffering occurring, really easy states. When we find that we're lost in anger, when we find that we're lost in fear, when we find that we're lost in grief, We can ask ourselves, is it possible to use this moment to learn more about compassion? Is it possible to use this moment to learn more about what is really going to uh, move us into freedom? What is really uh, going to make the difference instead of reacting with our usual habits? the recognition of our own suffering leads to uh, being able to really empathize with others. And this is, I think, a great grace in practice. You know, just, just sitting with the, the dukkha of, of pains and the dukkha of, of mental suffering and getting so close to it ourselves allows us so clearly to, to have a real, really true empathy for others. So we're not kind of reaching across pitying others, but so that we know it. In ourselves so that we're fully aware of how bad things can be within ourselves. It's one of those gifts that comes out of being in contact with Dukkha, recognizing that this fear is like the fear of others. This depression is the depression that others feel. This body that is experiencing so much pain and sickness is what others feel. And this allows us to um, feel less isolated and less alone, and as well to, to know others more deeply, to understand this world more deeply. The reorientation is moving from this orientation of everything being good and bad or everything being right and wrong to the orientation of whether suffering is happening or whether no suffering is happening. And it's such a different way to live our life. The Buddha was described by his contemporaries as as being ever-smiling. And the Buddha's disciples were described as being joyful and jubilant, um, enjoying the spiritual life, with freedom from anxiety, serenity, peaceful, light-hearted. And, of course, we know the only way they got there is through the recognition of dukkha, the same thing that we're doing right here and now, same path from 2,500 years ago that we're practicing right here and now is using dukkha as a gateway, using dukkha as a door into liberation. We discover that suffering isn't so dependent on our inner world being good or bad. It isn't so dependent on the outer world being good or bad, but really on our willingness and our capacity to use wisdom, to remember compassion in this moment. So I thought I would read you a few poems. Um, it's out of the Teragati Terragata, and um, it's called um, Songs of the Nuns. And um, there's a few I want to read to you. They're really beautiful. So just kind of relax back. and. To be reborn among the gods, I fasted and fasted every two weeks, day 8, 14, 15, and a special day. Now with a shaved head and Buddhist robes, I eat one meal a day. I don't long to be a god. There is no fear in my heart. It was 25 years since I left home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out Uh as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I was in a bad way, a widow, no children, no friends, no relations to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick, and wandered house to house, in the heat and cold for seven years. But I met a nun who had food and drink. I went and I went up to her and said, Take me into the homeless life. She was Patachara. Out of pity she guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice, it wasn't wasted. I have the three knowledges, there are no obsessions in my mind. The Buddha taught seven factors of enlightenment. They are ways to find peace and I have developed them all. I have found what is vast and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha always finding joy in peace. I have ended the hunger of gods and humans, and I will not wander from birth to birth. I have no thought of becoming. Or five times i left my cell i had no peace of mind no control over my mind i went to a nun i thought i could trust she taught me the dharma the elements of body and mind the nature of perception and earth water fire and wind i heard what she said and sat cross-legged seven days full of joy when on the eighth i stretched my feet out the great dark was torn apart And I just have one more. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So let's just um, sit for a moment.